Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. I Putin. I am a fighter, and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there, welcome, and thanks for joining us again on ANU's Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. And... With me, as usual, is the wonderful Dr. Maria Tafalaga, political scientist with the said School of Politics and International Relations. And uh, Maria, federal budget's not far away now. We're inside the final two weeks. And already there are claims being made and things being ruled out by the government, some things that we, you know, we, we know there's pressure on for the government to do. We've got Labor MPs calling for certain things. It's, it's, it's always tricky, I suppose, for governments uh, in the lead up to a budget uh, to sort of work out winners and losers and and manage expectations and so forth, and particularly so for a new government. This is actually the second budget that this government is dealing with inside the first year, given that they had that early budget in October of last year. But the politics are are always tricky and they're pretty tricky here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Labor sort of faces a very sort of specific set of dilemmas, I suppose, is one way of putting it, um, that are not necessarily um, unique historically. But I'd like to just remind uh, listeners that there was accusations made around the time of the 2019 budget that the coalition had booby-trapped that budget, you know, basically put in sort of spending measures that they hadn't worked out quite how to quite how to how to do or how to fulfill and a similar thing has sort of or, happened. Or, or that just cut out after That's the right. first year with and we saw that sort with of fiscal like, cliffs. Yeah. yeah. So we saw this with museums recently and five five hundred and twenty five exactly. million dollars I think handed out to a range of museums because all of their as you say, that all their funding just was scheduled to fall exactly, off a cliff. Exactly, exactly. And, and that, that a similar thing happened at the last election. And and to be fair, you know, losing governments or governments that, that think they're going to lose do this. This is not like a pathology of the coalition as such. It's, it's a pathology of losing parties, right? So you think um, you're going to lose. You you, yeah. you fund what you have to. Because it sounds good for yeah, announce- yeah. announcements. And, and you it, figure if we win, we'll work it out then. Exactly. It's a good problem to and have. If, and if we don't, yeah, exactly. And if we don't win, <laughs> suffering these other jocks. bastards. Are, exactly. <laughs> and then we'll point out that they're cutting our budget, right? Yeah, you know, right. like yeah. it's very cynical, very cynical politics. But and so, so Labor's got that that sort of usual problem, and then it's got the uh, sort of problem on top that the the budget has has been in structural def- deficit for a very long time, mm. and lots of uh, really pressing policy problems. And um, and you know, we've given out lots of money to groups that perhaps wasn't so wise to give it to them in the first place, given that 
what we now kind of know from behavioral economics and, and psychology that people have a real loss aversion. So like if you give if you give someone the option of a spoon and a cup and they really want the cup and you give them the spoon, then they don't really want to give you back the spoon because it's now theirs, even though you're offering them the cup. Okay, so that's what we call loss aversion. And the same can be said for any number of um, lovely payments that are that have been given out to, to to certain segments of the community, and it's that's why it's really difficult to claw them back. So governments should always be careful about issuing new payments, right? Particularly ones that are sort of one-offs that then get rolled into more permanent parts of the of the policy processes. Is that right? So we've got fiscal cliffs, we've got lots of kicking down the road, everything coming home to roost in the budget, really needing to be dealt with. And the third one is COVID, which is just sort of poured petrol on a whole bunch of processes that were already underway, blown sort of stuff up. There are potholes everywhere. There's wars going on. There's a lot of instability, right? We've got climate crisis. Um, lots of things are coming at the government. Uh, lots of step changes need to be made. They have actually many big problems that they have to, and they have to actually work out how to prioritise them. They cannot satisfy everyone. And on top it's of, hard. And on top of all of that, they're a Labor government around which certain expectations exist uh, in terms of their philosophy, what they're meant to do, looking after the, 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 the those less least fortunate. Exactly. Um, so there's there's a kind of a, a, an expectation uh, that they have to deal with there. And probably on top of all of that, you've got the fact, and we've discussed this before on, on, on this podcast, that um, in previous economic shocks, if we think about the GFC uh, back in the in, in the 2008-09, we think about uh, the onset of COVID. In both cases, there was a lot of room there for governments to use stimulus to actually address the problem. That room doesn't exist here. Even if the fiscal space did exist in terms of uh, you know the, the resources the government could draw on, the inflationary problem now dictates that uh, government can't just sort of shovel money into the economy. It can't deal, for example, with the cost of living crisis in the same way that it could deal with the, uh, you know, the, the sort of collapse in demand exactly. crisis that happened in in, in the early There's stages lots of, of COVID. Constraints. So let's go to one of Australia's leading economists to talk about this. Daniel Wood is the CEO of the highly respected Grattan Institute, which has had a bit to say in the lead up to the budget. And uh, Danielle, you would have heard us just talking now about expectations. It is a difficult uh, set of circumstances in which I should say first, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you for having me. And 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 back to my question, it is a difficult set of circumstances for any government to be crafting a, a budget, a sort of a, what everyone calls a cost of living crisis, but without the capacity that governments have had in the, the two most recent crises where they've been able to spend which is a fairly popular thing to do. Look, you're exactly right. And, you know, frankly, if they were to engage in uh, big and, and broad spending or, or price relief, um, that is only going to add to the inflation problem, as, as you said. So what they really don't want to be is doing is making the Reserve Bank jobs harder. What that means essentially is to address the cost of living problem any relief you give has to be really targeted. So you're trying to go to or direct support to the most vulnerable. You can't be giving kind of broad-based relief because uh, you are only going to make the, the challenge even bigger. So that's kind of the conundrum that they face. There will be some short-term good news in the budget, and I think it's worth acknowledging that. Um, you know, we've had much higher than uh, forecast commodity prices once again, 
uh, labour markets are stronger than governments were expecting. Uh, so revenues will actually look quite strong in the short term. Um, that also, of course, creates temptation for governments to want to, to shovel money off the door. But because of that inflation constraint, coupled with um, what Maria touched on, which is the kind of medium term structural budget challenge, those things are temporary. Um, when you look out on the horizon, the, the, the budget news is nowhere near as good. Uh, and so governments need to, to be restrained to stop making that longer term problem worse. Let's just dwell for a moment before we get into some of the more details, just on that that, that issue you raised there, that that, that point about um, revenue coming in from commodity prices. How important is it? How crucial is this to the budget? I know it was a it was a constant feature through the early part of this century. Uh, Peter Costello, you know, seemed to be standing up every budget and saying, "Well, we, we suddenly we got more money than we thought we were going to have, and these prices won't hold up." But they did hold up uh, for for a long time and allowed the government to bake in a lot of spending in the budget, which subsequently uh, started to look very vulnerable when when the revenue fell away. But that's that's looking pretty good for this budget, is it? With iron ore prices, coal, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. And and Treasury has taken an approach of very very conservative. I won't even call them forecasts; they're actually assumptions. Um, so essentially, they for iron ore, they just assume that the price will will be fifty five dollars a ton. Uh, it is in excess of a hundred dollars a ton. Um, and you know, and frankly, you know, you wouldn't forecast it at fifty five a ton. We all knew it was going to be higher than that. So each time, exactly as happened in the Costello years, you get these kind of revenue upsides. Um, that can be dangerous because it creates a situation where governments feel flush with cash for a period. Uh, they are, of course, just temporary windfalls. And if you lock in you know, permanent spending or permanent tax cuts against those temporary gains, that's really what opens up these structural budget pressures. And you know, that's, that's fed in in the past, and we certainly want to avoid making those any bigger. Should some of that money then be funneled into sovereign wealth funds, into future fund type activities? I mean, that, that essentially is what countries like Norway did with North Sea Oil and uh, you know, right through the through the, the the richest years of that, um, creating a sovereign wealth fund, we have a couple of. I'm not sure how many future funds we have now, but we have the the major future fund and 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 other sort of portfolio ones. Is that where some of that money should go, or should it go to retiring debt? I know that uh, interest payments on debt is a might even be the most second most or the highest expenditure line in the budget at the moment. It's it's the fastest growing expenditure line right. in in the budget. Uh, you know, probably at this at this point in the fiscal cycle, you would just use it to pay down debt. Right. Um, sovereign wealth funds make a lot of sense if you're running budget surpluses and you don't want to push the money out the door. Pushing it into a wealth fund at that point is sensible. But you know, here I think the government should just bank it to the bottom line. That is what they've said they will do, or they've said they will bank most of it to the bottom line, and that most, of course, is important. Uh, it will be very interesting to see how how restrained they manage to be in terms of the overall picture. They were pretty good with that in October, weren't they? I mean, uh, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, was making a point about ninety nine percent of revenue was being um, was being banked. Uh, I think was the term he used. They were um, the numbers were slightly fudged. Uh, it, it certainly was ninety nine <laughs> in the the first couple of years. Um, less so in in the kind of out years of the the forward estimates, but. Certainly more restrained than than we've seen in a while with those types of windfalls. 
Now, one of the things that uh, you've called for and uh, a number of people have called for, and there seems to be some sort of uh, progress on, it may well be that uh, you know, in the next few days, uh, as, certainly as we record this, we don't know the outcome, but there's a lot of talk around reversing or partially reversing the decision to uh, take single parents, single mothers generally, off the single parenting payment once their child it used to be when their child turned 16 and under the uh, Gillard government, I think it went down to when the child eight. turned eight. Now, I think Grattan's called for that payment to be restored. What's what, what's the latest you're hearing on that? And what's the argument for doing so? Uh, I, I should say that um, I, I have called for that. Um, I've, I'm a member of the government's Women's Economic Equality Task Force and, and the task force has put that amongst its recommendations for this budget. So um, my support for that is under that banner. So as distinct from Grattan, you mean? No, I haven't done a specific piece right. of work on it at Grattan. So I'll yeah. just I'll just draw that distinction for you. Sure. Um, you know, I think it is building a lot of support and, and certainly I think probably reflects um, partial regret within Labor for that. Uh, worth noting, it was actually originally, a, it was a Howard government policy but it was grandfathered for a certain set of parents. The Gillard government change was to remove that that grandfathering. Right, right. So, so it existed. So anyone who was already receiving job, who was already receiving single parent payment, uh, they their conditions continued on. And uh, but exactly. uh, but Even any, any new entrant okay. to it uh, had to uh, accept those other terms, which meant that when the child turned eight. They went to the job seeker payment, which was a lower payment. In fact, what was the difference? About a hundred dollars a week, or at least it is now. Then. It's about a hundred dollars a week at the moment, which and, is pretty and terrible. Which is, yeah. it, it's a it's a big percentage of of income, and on top of that, um, the the job seeker payment has more aggressive clawback as you start to earn money. So for any single parents that are working part time, um, not only do they see the hit in the the base rate of the payment, but they also face more clawback of their of their income, which is actually a deterrent to work, which is, you know, the opposite of, of what we were hoping to do with that policy. And, you know, as part of our work on the task force, um, you know, we've done consultation with with people that have been impacted by this policy and, you know, the way they talk about that sort of cliff when their child turns eight, the stress they feel in the lead up and the impact that has on their capacity to give their kids the basics is is pretty harrowing. Yeah, because that's what we're talking about here, right? We're, we're talking about a low payment and going on to a ridiculously low payment, an impossible payment to really live on in a dignified way and to provide real and meaningful security for your children. That's right. And and, and the impact is we have, you know, a third of single parent households in poverty. Uh, and that means, you know, those children are growing up in poverty and we know that that comes with significant, um, you know, mental and, and, and physical scarring impacts um, the the rationale, you know, I think it is worth kind of unpacking was that as children get older, there's greater capacity to engage in, in the workforce. Certainly, it seems, you know, eight is pretty young uh, and, and we know that there's all sorts of, of challenges with, with working while your kids are particularly are at primary school. Uh, that does get easier as, as they get older, but we know there's a lot of people on parenting payment face uh, other barriers. And so, you know, I would like to see if we're if it's encouraging people to work that we are about um, positive programs to help people transition to the workforce, um, rather than using this very very punitive reduction in payments, which which we know have caused all sorts of damage. Yeah, it's just designed to sort of effectively force people into uh, into that transition, perhaps in circumstances where there isn't 
the opportunity to make the transition and so all they end up with is the lower payment, as you say, then then ends up just being simply punitive. Um, and there's some actually some very good um, new research coming out of ANU which has looked at that case study of the Gillard changes and, and found that for most people you actually didn't see that increase in, in work, you actually just saw them move on to the, the lower payment. So that, that speaks to those barriers that exist. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think there's too many people in the Labor Party who are particularly proud of that decision uh, back in uh, 2011, I think it was. Is that right? Some Sometime like that, 2011, 2012? I think it's 2011, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it also goes to the point of, um, like we actually see this throughout our tax system, right? Like these fulcrum points between the tax system and, and working and, and, and the sort of perverse incentive structures that it generates, right? Um, you know, we see that with the job seeker, which you sort of alluded to just then, this single parent payment, but also, um, you know, like working that, that fourth or fifth day um, for women who, who are sort of also uh, trying to pay for, for childcare. I mean, I presume this actually goes to a lot of the work you must have been doing on um, this advisory council it, it may, I guess the first question is, is that actually the case? Am I correct? And is the government actually receptive to this idea if it's true? It is true. And it's the, the flip side, if you like, of having a very targeted welfare system. And we do really stand out internationally for how targeted we are, is that by definition, as you earn more income, so whether that's, you know, you're earning, um, you're working part time while you're on job seeker payment, whether it's the single parent going back to work, um, whether it's the the household using childcare and wanting to work more days, you get this claw back of these benefits, which creates work disincentives. So any good system should try and balance those two things. Obviously, the less targeted you make it, the more expensive it is to provide. But once you start to have really big work disincentives, that's very much a, a negative for the, the broader economy. So I think you know many have argued, including myself, that we haven't got that balance right at the moment, that these clawbacks are too aggressive. Um, we actually saw the Treasury Secretary come out and do a really good speech about that in the context of, of women with young children recently. Um, I think there is a broader argument around job seeker. Most of what we are talking about in the lead up to this budget is about base rates. We haven't talked about design as much. I think that's probably the next place the debate will go. But at the moment, actually, for both single parents and, and job seeker recipients, it's about you know basic level of adequacy, capacity to survive on the base rates of these payments. Which is the thing that matters for them very much in the in the short term, uh, particularly because that is very much the horizon of their of their economic lives. Um, you know, making it from from week to week and meeting the the costs of which is soaring. You know, costs of uh, food and rent and energy and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, really extraordinary. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. 
You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, Danielle, um, what, what other things did the task force recommend? There was rent assistance, I think, among the, the recommendations? Uh, that's right. So we know we know that um, rent assistance just hasn't kept pace with the private rental market over the past 15 years. So we recommended an increase in rent assistance to help address that, and that's particularly pressing at the moment, given what we can see happening in the data with advertised rents. They, they are shooting up very aggressively. Uh, we also recommended an abolition of the Parents Next program. That is a program that started with the best of intentions, which was actually about what I was talking about before, helping single parents transition back into the workforce. Uh, but it ended up being lay, layered with um, very punitive um, components that you know forced people further into poverty and sometimes pushed them off their payments for quite unfair reasons. Um, very, very much detested amongst single parents, I can assure you. So we've, we've called for that to be abolished and to, to be relaunched as something are more in line with the original spirit. Um, we have also called for an abolition of the childcare activity test. This restricts access to early learning and care um, for parents that aren't currently meeting the, the work requirements. That has led to a, a pretty strange chicken and egg problem where it's very hard to, to find work and get a job if you don't have childcare in place. It's um, like so that again, policy was designed by people who actually haven't spent that much time looking after little kids. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> or, or trying to access the childcare system. Exactly. So I thought of it, it assumes that there's no transaction costs and you can get a place straight away. And, and that you have uninterrupted time available to you all the time. Indeed, mm. indeed. So, uh, and you know, the downside of that is is twofold. It's that those parents are then missing out on the opportunity to, to work, uh, but also that their children uh, are not accessing early learning and care and you know particularly for disadvantaged households we know that there are big educational benefits from getting in that system so uh, that one seemed like a no-brainer to us. Now you, you mentioned uh, rental assistance before we were talking about it before um, there's, there's there's a lot of talk at the moment I think the Sydney Morning Herald Shane Wright and others have been writing about about housing policy generally about Australia's fetish with property, how we've turned it into an investment in instrument uh, very much, uh, more so than other countries. It's a really diabolical sort of problem, isn't it, uh, sort of unpicking all of this because it's so deeply woven now into the sort of social and economic fabric. Um, so many, you know, we've, we've got these incentives like negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. You know, property is, uh, is, a, is a problem. At the same time, we've got an undersupply of rental properties. We've got rent going through the roof. I think the um, inflation figures, figures came out today and, uh, uh, you know, rents are uh, very much a part of that as, along with new dwellings and and uh, it's a... Uh, it's it's all it's it's how do you unscramble this situation? How do, how does how does a government find a way through this to address problems for people uh, in terms of access and affordability at the bottom end, whilst uh, whilst uh, dealing with the political realities that Australians are in love with property? Look, it's a great question, and I think you know we we would say you've got to you've got to look at measures for both the short and the the long term. So short term. Um, rent assistance makes a lot of sense. It's very targeted to those that are most vulnerable. So it doesn't uh, have that kind of inflationary pressure because it's targeted, not even exactly. all renters I mean, would get it. So any spending will have some inflationary pressure, but it's about the quantum uh, right. and it's it's not going to push up 
rents significantly, which is, is, is very important. The other thing that can happen sooner rather than later is um, governments to build more social housing and the government obviously has a, a social housing future fund, which is geared towards that. Um, we would like to see that be larger. They're having a lot of trouble getting that through the parliament uh, and, and debates with the Greens well, that's, around that, that. I'm glad you mentioned that because the Greens want to freeze rents. This is one of the things that I think as we speak, Adam Band is addressing the National Press Club and uh, one of the things the Greens are calling for is a freeze on rents. Um, it sounds good on, on, on the, you know, on first blush, but um, the Greens say unless they get that freeze, they're not going to support the uh, the uh, what what's it called the Housing Australia Future Fund, ten billion dollar fund for social housing. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously some political brinksmanship going on there, but um, I don't know how they can justify that. What do you think about the idea of a rent freeze? I don't think it would be a good idea. I can I can see why it seems attractive in the the short term, but um, we have a long term challenge of housing supply, uh, and the surest way to um, make housing supply go down or not increase at the rate we want it to is to, to put in place a, a rent freeze. So much better to help those who most need it in the short term and long term the policy has to be about supply. You know, we we, we heard the government talking about the sort of, um, I think they called it national housing policy in the last budget that was sort of focused on can we get super funds and other institutional investors uh, in the market. Um, Sure, but much more important would be, frankly, if, if they want to make a dent, incentivise the states to do planning reform uh, and build up density in, in inner and middle ring suburbs. That is the only way we are going to get the supply that we need. Uh, that does not solve the problem overnight. That is, that's a long-term fix, but it's incredibly important. Uh, at the same time, I think you would act on the, those tax breaks that you were talking about, Mark. I think supply is actually more important, but you obviously don't want to be throwing demand on uh, fuel on the demand fire either. Uh, and there is a good both economic and fiscal case, frankly, for reducing the size of the capital gains tax discount and, and winding back some of those negative gearing benefits. Um, that as a wholesale package, I think, um, starts to, to to really get you somewhere more sensible in the longer term. And the incentivization of the states, I mean, do you have in mind for example, increasing the GST, is that, would that be uh, uh, one thing that could be put on the table? I mean, it's a big thing, but uh, the states get the revenue from the GST. Uh, so they could do it that way. Um, the other way would just be to finance um, additional payments conditional on certain amounts of supply being added in, in certain areas. Um, so something along the lines of the national competition policy payments, it gives the states cover to do hard things. So we know that you know people that live in these areas that tend to be resistant to new people coming in. The beneficiaries are, are much broader. The people that are not there at the moment or can't get affordable housing at the moment, but you know that makes it politically hard. So saying that you're going to miss out on some payments from the Commonwealth if you don't act can be a helpful cover for for states to to do some of those things that are necessary but politically difficult. Now, one of the things, Maria, that uh, it gets talked about a lot uh, in this, and we've touched on it a bit already, but uh, is the idea of increasing JobSeeker, right? It, uh, irrespective of that other debate, I mean, JobSeeker is incredibly low. People are living on $50 a day, which is to cover everything. I mean, I suspect sometimes when people hear that number, they think about some of their own costs. But I mean, you, you're basically spending 
You're not really – I think people think like, oh, yeah, well, I buy lunch and, yeah. you know, I buy a coffee and yeah. I've got change left over. Yeah. But they're not necessarily costing in like um, the utilities, Everything. the rates, the rent, their shoes, the children's um, – Their transport. Exactly, transport, all the items in their house that they need yeah. to pay for, insurance yeah. or whatever. You yeah, know, the assuming, lumpy costs Assuming these people can afford things like insurance, you know, mm. medicines. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a very small amount of money, right? So – that's one of the things you'd like to see, I take it, Danielle, is an increase to job seeker? Uh, yes, I would. And I think that, you know, the work of the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee was 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 very powerful on that. And it, it you know, picks up those points you were just making. You know, whatever benchmark you use, this payment is so far short of the amount that people need to just meet the basic necessities. Um, no one's talking about people on job seeker living it up, but to to, to afford, you know, the basic building blocks. Of a, of a quality life. Uh, and again, you know, lots of talking to people and examples littered through that report of, of people making the point, you know, they have to choose between heating their home or taking their medicine or having their next meal. Uh, look, I think that that's pretty confronting. So, you know, my argument um, is, is kind of less an economic one here, although I think the committee makes the rightful point that those payments are now so low, they're actually a barrier to workforce participation. It's very difficult to, to search for a job in a world where you can't afford, um, you know, the new shoes, new shoes, the transport to get there, um, you know, the meal, to, and and mentally, um, you know, a lot of your brain space is taken up with, you know, how you're going to make those numbers work. But you know, it is it's also a moral um, demand. I think that you know those that payment now is so low, and us as a wealthy country, we we can afford to give more to the most vulnerable. And, you know, I wrote a piece yesterday around um, some of the myths, I think, that have allowed us to sustain um, such a low payment and, and to sort of make ourselves at peace with such a low payment. You know, we often think about people on welfare, these kind of, you know, kids playing video games in their parents' basement. You know, more than half of welfare recipients are over 45. They're more likely to be older women than than, than that, that teenager um, we've changed eligibility for parenting payment, age pension, disability support pension, um, so that a whole lot of people that frankly will find it difficult to, to work or at least work full-time are now having to live on this payment. So they're on it not just for three months while they find another job, they're on it for you know one year, two years, five years, uh, and those are the people that I'm really worried about. Yes, well, even Ken Henry, the former Treasury Secretary, who I understand is not particularly in favour of, of, of changing or, or scrapping or delaying stage three tax cuts, which we can talk about in a moment. But he has uh, he has said uh, t- this morning, I think, on ABC News uh, that he thinks not increasing it would be cruel. And uh, it's hard to argue that with that, uh, given what you've just said and given what we know about that that parsimonious number. It, it makes me think about you know just how how psychologically precarious it makes people feel when they're the amount of money they have is so low that they can build no kind of future even in their mind really about where they will be living how how whether they can continue to survive the yeah, way they are yeah pl- there's actually plenty of empirical data that shows that people who are on such low incomes like have a lower capacity to actually reason through problems because they're so stressed mm. it's 
I mean, to just think of illustrative examples, like if you're living, it's not quite as bad as living in a war zone, but it's not it's not that different from it in a way as well. Like there are plenty of unknowns all the times and uncertainties. You have no idea, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone next week. You have no ability to sort of plan. You're in, you're in constant sort of survival mode. And I think this is one of the things that I think people have trouble imagining. Like if you've never actually lived um, that kind of life where you're really worrying about where your next meal is going to come from or how you're going to buy shoes for your kids let alone and and that it and that it might never end i mean i think a lot of politicians sort will sort of say things like oh well you know when i was a student i lived on youth allowance or you know i had a job like picking fruit or whatever but i think for the vast majority of those mp's they all knew that that wasn't going to be permanent Mm. This wasn't going to be their long-term future. Yeah. If you're talking about... Put someone uh, at the other end of their life, at the other end of their exactly, youth at least. Exactly. And, and, uh, if you've kicked someone off the disability support mm. payment who's 45 years old, who um, you know doesn't have necessarily all the skills required to apply for an online job, which is how most people do it now and can't buy a new computer and can't buy shoes to look professional, mm. realistically, like, is that person actually going to get a job and what's their belief that they're going to get that, yeah. that And what's job? their relationship with a society that's telling them Precisely. that? I mean, it becomes... A, an unproductive relationship. I think it's extremely definition. exactly. I think it's extremely telling that the COVID supplement brought people up to the poverty line. Yeah, just the poverty line. Yeah, and that this transformed people's lives. You know, that's shameful. Yeah, and it was it was good that it happened. Shameful though that number might be. Exactly. Good that it happened, and then of course it got taken away again. Unlike a lot of the job keeper payments, which uh, stayed with employers that in many cases didn't need it and certainly didn't have to account for it in ways that uh, um, people on unemployment benefit would. Danielle, I mentioned that uh, obviously around the debate about what you're going to uh, increase uh, has to come with you know how you're going to afford it, how you're going to pay for it. And one of those things that comes up is stage three tax cuts. We know this is worth a lot of money to the budget. Um, I think it was 253 billion or some sort of number like that over 10 years from when it kicks in, which is about a year from now, a bit over a year from now in 2024. What, what, what's your proposal there around stage three tax cuts? So uh, you think it can be modified, the package, in such a way that uh, there is still some addressing of bracket creep, which is one of the key arguments for doing it, uh, but uh, but also uh, curbing some of the expenditure or the the cost of bringing those tax cuts in. That's right. I mean, they those tax cuts. I think it's worth um, remembering the history were devised back in 2019 in an entirely different fiscal environment when we actually thought we'd be seeing big surpluses by now uh, pre pre COVID. But also back in black, yeah. Back in black. <laughs> I've, I've got the coffee mug. <laughs> I actually have one. I <laughs> well, that'd be worth a bit. I know. I thought they might not get there, and I managed to pick one up before they it's came the, online. It's the only thing it's probably appreciated since then, at least in, uh, in budget <laughs> Although terms. the the sticker's kind of peeling off a bit. It all it all oh, was a, bit, a sticker. A bit sad. Oh, yeah, man. it was thirty five dollars for a black mug with a sticker on it. How transitory! Yeah. What a wonderful metaphor. As transitory of the <laughs> as as illusionary as the surplus oh, itself. Indeed, uh, indeed. What um, mugs we were. <laughs> what marks me very good, Mark. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those tax cuts were, were, were calibrated really in in that um, different fiscal yeah. environment. There, there is, you know, some need as as you point to to give back bracket creep over time. Um, we don't index our tax brackets, so if we go a very very long period without income tax cuts, we see average tax rates creeping up, and that particularly impacts middle income earners. 
Um, these are skewed more towards the top end, and by that I mean um, it actually overcompensates for for inflation or for bracket creep. Sorry, um, right at the top of the distribution. Uh, so what we propose is modifying the cuts, essentially um, making one change, which is rather than removing the thirty-seven cent tax bracket, we leave it in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that people earning over one hundred twenty thousand still get a tax cut, just not as big. Uh, the fiscal benefit of that is about eight billion dollars in in the first year. And does that it mean that? Does, then. Sorry to cut you off. Does that mean that the thirty seven cent tax bracket would apply to income over one hundred twenty thousand or over over two hundred thousand? Over one hundred twenty, just as it does now. So right. the, the the tax package at the moment actually just eliminates that bracket. Yeah, between altogether between forty thousand and and. 200,000. Yeah. That's right. So you have this, this very um, flat scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we say is, no, we'll leave that in. There, there's no particular efficiency magic around taking out a tax bracket. Um, no, but it suits you know, a that certain was, that political was sold as tax reform, logic. but it, it, you know, that, that's not, um, you know, there's nothing about having one less bracket that, that makes the system more efficient. Um, you've got the normal arguments about average tax rates and the impact that has on incentives to work. But um, we think that that's a balancing between giving back some of the bracket creep while making a, a sizable contribution to the bottom line. And, and you know, worth worth noting there that $8 billion I just spoke of, the, the very sizable increase in JobSeeker that was proposed by the Economic Inclusion Committee um, would, would cost a bit under $6 billion Right, so it, would, so, so it would more than fund that. It would more than fund that. And, you know, if I took a step back and said, well, I don't think the you know efficiency costs of that are that large, uh, and I think the equity gains are enormous. <laughs> um, so you don't you don't you know that 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 seems to me it would be quite a compelling package that the government could try and sell. Now, Maria, that is a compelling argument on the face of it, but it is also the case that the previous government was known for breaking promises pretty well from its 2013-14 budget. 14, 15, I should say, budget. Um, and uh, this government came in with a very much a plan to make promises and stick to its promises. There's a very strong sort of uh, discourse around this in Australian politics now, this idea of fidelity to election promises. Anthony Albanese takes it very seriously. Even some people who think stage three is stage three tax cuts are too generous are of the view that even notwithstanding that fact, the political cost to the government would be huge if it were to scrap them because it it had supported them when in opposition. Do you think that would apply if they were tweaked in the way that Danielle is talking about? So I think that the government will eventually will will do some kind of tweaking of these tax cuts because one, they supported them in opposition Entirely reluctantly and out of political necessity. I mean, they they, they wanted the separation. They wanted the package separated, didn't they? But they, they couldn't did, they get did. that. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, and they basically sort of said, um, "Well, we've just been hammered in this election. I don't want to spend the next three years defending why I'm not giving people tax cuts." I mean, they were they were plain as day about that. They didn't support them, um, but they they chose to do it for political reasons. And I think their resistance now is, as you've just telegraphed, entirely for political reasons. But they have good like fiscal reasons to try to find a way around. Around this, and it suits them to allow the like just from a cynical political perspective, it really suits them to allow the pressure 
for them to change these tax cuts, to build and build and build and build and build. And so then they can say, we're listening, as opposed to we've broken a promise or, you know, um, we're going to give you these tax cuts, but we're going to modify them, perhaps do it using this uh, this tax bracket example. And, we'll, and we'll, you know, like you say to your children, we'll see. We'll see if, if we can um, do more down the line. Because, I mean, ultimately the government, the government is well aware of the fact that it, it actually faces multiple complex problems. And there's actually, it's, it's like a patient with a lot of serious chronic illnesses. They basically got to deal with the, the most chronic illness first before they can actually get to the systemic cause of the disease, which in this case is the completely cooked um, ratio between and, and Danielle, you're an economist, so please school me if I'm wrong, right? Between like we we, we seem to rely too much on income tax. We, we're not taxing wealth enough, basically. We, we need some rebalancing um, of this and reprioritizations within the budget. Like there's enough money in there. It's just that it's not it's not allocated very rationally because haven't had a good clean out for a long time. And if we look at the trajectory of the Hawke government, well, what did they do in their first term? They floated the dollar. Um, they never promised to do that. Circumstances kind of... Um, like it was going to happen anyway, and and that was a big deal, and that needed a lot of digesting and selling and stuff like that. But they actually, if you if you actually look at the trajectory of that government, they they did lots of um, medium sized reforms all throughout that government, and they were constantly building cases for change and cases for reform. If you look at the Howard government, I know a lot of people say that they were like you know lazy in their second half, but actually after two thousand and four, they did a hell of a lot of stuff. So much so that they got booted out of office, mm. right? So. So this idea that governments have to do everything in their first 100 days is not reflective of the way our political system works. It's borrowed from the United States, which has a completely different set of institutional norms, veto players and logics. Our system isn't like that. Albanese understands that. They're actually already doing that. Like their language around this is always softening a little. They're just they're I, they're waiting, they're waiting to see if the conditions emerge that allows them to move on this. And if they don't, they'll stick to their promise. That's what I think will happen. Danielle? Oh, look, I, I try and steer clear of <laughs> giving political advice, but I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, the the sort of, you're right, Mark, this is actually the second budget of, of this term, but the first kind of big May budget, um, this would normally be the time I would expect governments to do hard things, um, you know, these tax cuts kick in before the next term, uh, unless they um, unless go they go to an early. It's one option would be to actually Which, take a right. plan to an election as part of a broader restructuring. But you know, more broadly, I think you know if you're not doing kind of big bold things now, uh, you're probably not going to be doing them this term. Um, you may be doing a two-term strategy. Uh, will the government have the courage to take bold things to an election? Um, yeah, after, and, and, and after running a small target strategy for so long, that's that's yeah, yeah I think that's a really important question. It is a good question because it's pretty hard. I mean, it's a really uh, savage set of uh, sort of time imperatives here. Those tax cuts, if not changed, will flow before the next election, which means taking them away again becomes impractical as well in a political sense. Um, so, if there is to be change, it has to occur before they come in, which is. July 1, 2024. That's right. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a win- closing window. Um, and, uh, you know, 
politics isn't easy, I suppose, but there there are many things. Look, just very quickly, a couple of other ideas we'll just touch on before we before we go, um, because I think th- th- there are some other ideas that have been floating around, a 10% uh, royalty tax on gas exports, for example, offshore gas exports, um, or on offshore gas anyway. Um, that's something I think Grattan's proposed as well, isn't it? Uh, we've we've had a look at various options around the taxation of, of resource rents for gas. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say when you look at the scale of, of windfall profits being made and, and the amount of tax that's coming back through the current petroleum resource rent tax, which is applied to the gas producers, uh, it looks pretty small. Uh, and you know, when you think they're you know it's supposed to be compensation for Australian resources. Uh, I'm not surprised that the government is is looking to this for this budget. Um, there are various ways you can tweak that regime to address. Um, so kind of some of the more purest ways, there's the uplift factor, there's the way in which gas is priced within the formula. A simpler thing is just to slap a royalty on top. I think government is, well, my understanding is that Treasury has been reviewing this. They've given advice to government. I certainly expect to see hmm. something on this uh, in the budget. I think it yeah, would that's be a, noise you know, it's a too. very rare, popular tax change, uh, and and one that you know can can yield revenue in the billions of dollars a year. Yeah, it doesn't have a very happy recent political history, of course, with the uh, resource super profits tax, the RSPT. Um, no, but uh, the, the circumstances are very different now, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they certainly are. Thanks so much, Danielle. It's been really terrific talking with you. We're obviously going to be uh, all uh, hearing a fair bit about economics and budgets and so forth for the next uh, little while, and it's been really great to talk about some of the creative ideas that the government could be looking at, some of the reasons why they should be looking at things, and uh, let's hope that um, uh, some of these sorts of issues are going to be addressed because there are, there are some big structural problems in the in the in the budget and in the way our tax and transfer system works, uh, and 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 uh, that doesn't work for everyone. That's right. Um, and happy budget season. Yes. Happy budget. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope it is a happy budget. Um, that is Democracy Sausage for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can do so at our uh, email address, democracysausage at anu.edu.au. You can also subscribe to Democracy Sausage, which uh, we would very much appreciate you doing, uh, and you can even rate the discussion. Uh, obviously, we won't have any sort of negative option. It all has to be positive. <laughs> but um, that is Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks and bye for now. <laughs>